It's March 10th, 2019, and this is episode 391 of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Today's episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin is brought to you by fellow early adopters and longtime friends of the show at EasyDNS.com. When you need website hosting, domain management, email provisioning, or more, think EasyDNS.com. And for new customers, use coupon code LTB half off. That's one word, LTB half off, to save fifty percent on your first purchase. On today's episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin, we're exploring AB one four eight nine or the California Bid License, and AB nine five three or the California Stablecoin Cannabis Taxation Bill, which is just not really the name, but it's what we're calling it because these things have terrible names. They basically just say amendment and blah blah blah. Anyways, through a series of short interviews on various sides of today's issues. First, we speak to Colin Gallagher, a longtime crypto enthusiast in California who shares his concerns about the process and substance of both bills we're talking about today. Next, Peter Van Valkenburg joins us from Coin Center from his perspective on why the California bid license is actually a deregulating bill, why they help craft good legislation for those states who want it, and more. We close today's show with Ali Medina, mayor of Emeryville, California, executive director of blockadvocacy.org, and a relative newcomer to Bitcoin. Ali tells us how much AB 953 and stablecoins could mean to the cash-rich but unbanked demographic and make all users of the legal marijuana system safer by taking the giant bags of cash, armored cars, and wacky security measures out of the picture. Today's show was a little bit different. Let me know what you think. Adam at letstalkbitcoin.com. Enjoy the show. On today's episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin... I'm here with Colin Gallagher, a longtime community member who recently has been sounding the alarm on legislative rumblings underway in California right now. Colin, thanks for taking the time. Yeah, well, thank you for having me on. I, I really appreciate it, Adam. Okay, Colin, so let's just jump right into it. What's going on here? Basically, what I think we've got here is several bills, right? The most salient one, the one that people will probably be focusing on, the one that was uh, linked in the Reddit thread, is AB 14... 89, if I'm recalling the number correctly, and says there's all these bill numbers now. This bill, introduced in 2019, is the ULC, or the Uniform Law Commission's uh, model bill, which they've, they've, in the past, tried to get adopted in various states. Um, pretty much beginning in, I'm not sure if it's 2015, but in 2015, we started to see California State and a couple other states attempting to adopt bit license, getting turned down attempting to adopt it again. The ULC was involved in um, trying to promote a model bill that they felt they could get adopted in multiple states. It's never been something that anybody would really want, but they keep pushing it kind of quietly. I recall, I think it was in Nebraska, actually, in a prior legislative session, they tried to get it passed, like in, say, a small state, and they were hoping nobody would notice. (laughs) People noticed. Um, (laughs) You'll see now that the same bill, the ULC model bill, being pushed in not just California, but they'll try to split the opposition up into into um, different fronts so that you're having to contend with various different state legislatures. Hmm. So Oklahoma, you know, you're like, Oklahoma, yep, Oklahoma. Um, Nevada, of all places, I doubt that anything like this would pass in Nevada, given the politics in Nevada, but it's hard to say. If you ignore it, then maybe it will pass. You know, and if you do nothing about it, maybe it will pass. Hawaii has actually defeated bit license before a couple times. 
yet they want to introduce it there again. They're assessing are their votes, so, you know, can they get it on the floor? Can they maybe get it past the one legislative body, even if the other one won't? It's that kind of thing. These bills, though, even if you say they pass, like, say, the California Assembly, which is almost a given, like the California Assembly will pass anything now, basically. Can it pass committees? Mm-hmm. And that's the real question that people have to ask for opposition of these bills to be effective in opposition. You have to know what committees it's likely to go to, like the banking, finance committee, appropriations. And if you can't stop it from moving forward in the assembly in California, it's very likely that you still have a very strong chance of being able to defeat uh, a costly bill, a bill that's expensive to business and to individuals, regardless of who people will assert it applies to. Um, it can be stopped in Senate appropriations, even with the current partisan makeup of California and the way it is and the majority uh, being what it is. In fact, bills that most of the legislators in California legislature would want to pass, many of them have been successfully stopped in Senate appropriations, even after having passed the assembly with full assent. It can be done, but people should not like lean back on their laurels or assume that because bit license was denied before it will be again and so on and so forth. All right, Colin. So we're just going to go through these issues in kind of a basic form. Uh, What I'd like to know about this first one, which is AB 1489 entitled an act to add chapter seven to division eight of the commercial code and to add division 1.25 commencing with section 3101 to the financial code relating to virtual currency businesses. Yeah. (laughs) That's a terrible name. Um, Anyways, um, if you could uh, just start with this one, uh, what is this bill? Why is it important? Uh, or in terms of what danger do you think that it serves to our community or to the cryptocurrency project broadly? And uh, what should we do about it in your eyes? Okay. Well, keeping this as simple as possible. Um, this bill is very, very similar to past bills we've seen in California. Uh, the AB 1489 for 2019. Very, very similar. When we first saw the ULC or the Uniform Law, Law Commission attempt to introduce BitLicense um, along with the Conference of State Banking Supervisors who are supporting their Vision 2020 concept. AB 1326 in 2015 and 2016 defeated. AB 1123 in 2017 and 2018 also defeated. Essentially, you have a knockoff bill, which is AB 1489, and which the ULC, or the Uniform Laws Commission, as they're otherwise known, wish to get passed in uh, not just California, but in multiple states, which is now what they're trying to do. For people that pay membership fees to things like the ULC or the Conference of State Banking Supervisors or whatever to to be part of that professional group, it's a way for them to get around the the disclosure laws that that require that that political money be disclosed. So they're paying these people, and then these people will go and do the lobbying in the legislature. Then there's other interests that contact them and say, hey, how about you, you add this language into the bill? So it escapes the whole concept of being able to disclose who's paying the money politically to have this stuff happen when you see something like the ULC uh, format bill saying, you know, this, you know, don't worry, it's got exemptions. You won't have to, well, these people won't have to get permission. It still causes tremendous pain to the industry. A full disclosure is that I work for one of the top five exchanges by 24-hour volume. But even if I didn't work for them, I still would be opposing this as I was even before I was working for an exchange. So AB 1489 is basically the latest attempt at a bill we've seen tried to get passed many times before over the last number of years. And it's pretty similar to the one that actually was passed, but there are some differences uh, relative to the one in New York. 
yes, there's definitely differences between the one in New York and the ones that we see uh, introduced to the state legislatures in California and currently also Nevada, Hawaii, and Oklahoma. Notably, um, Hawaii has defeated bit license before, I think twice actually, over the course of a couple different bills in both House bills and, and its Senate type bills. What is the bad thing that the bit license is trying to do right now? What, what, is the, what did they accomplish in New York and what are they trying to accomplish with this bill elsewhere? Well, what they accomplished in New York, just really to sum up, is to make it so that people have to ask permission of the state in order to run uh, certain types of businesses. Now, if you get a business license or if you get a license from the state to do business, you've already got some kind of a license, but this adds a new license on top of that, a license to use the kind of currency that one wants to. And then on top of it, it requires that there be information sharing from the New York bit license with um, any other states that feel like they need to engage in this bit license type activity. It requires sharing of customer information with the FBI. It requires periodic audits. It requires a whole range of things that essentially treat innovators as their criminals. And I, I don't even know a person in the space who engages in criminal activity. And we're constantly looking after compliance issues all the time just to make sure that our corporates can stay onboarded and still access funding and, and so on. So, so the idea that we're underregulated or we're not regulated sufficiently is, is sort of ludicrous for, as anybody knows who works in this space. So what's the timeline on this? And in terms of momentum, how, does it look like this is likely to pass or is this just sort of another attempt but likely to be pushed back at this point? Well, it's quite possible that with the level of awareness already given to it, um, I'm very thankful that there uh, were some people willing to pin it for a few days in the R Bitcoin subreddit to get more uh, visibility to the issue. But I've indicated before, and I think it's, it's, it's safe to say that pretty much anything will pass the California Assembly. Doesn't mean, however, that it can't be stopped because you could still say, well, we'll stop it in the Senate committee, like the Senate Appropriations Committee, because of the costs of it. And that's actually true for other bills that are totally unrelated to this that the legislature may ideologically favor, but which, because of their costs, may end up sinking this thing, even if it passes the, the assembly. This is something people want to make sure doesn't you know, happen. How should they be thinking about it? How should they be helping? Strategically, I think that businesses that are concerned, whether they're small businesses or very large ones like large exchanges or nonprofits, because there's also quite a few nonprofits that have corporate accounts with exchanges and rely on those exchanges for their nonprofit activities, they should collaborate with each other. For other people they know are involved in the space, in the the crypto-related space, they should say, okay, rather than each of us submit our own position letter on these bills, Assembly and Senate, they should collaborate and say, we're going to have several of us, you know, together co-sign some kind of letter. You know, you have one business or one, you know, an individual's like they can kind of ignore it. But if you have many, many individuals coming to the legislature, they could still ignore it. But, mm-hmm. but if you have a bunch of businesses co-signing a letter, even if it's three or four businesses, you know, small businesses are large. They know that there's people with real issues and concerns behind this and not just somebody that's, that's griping and sniping. To the extent that um, this will impact and people should read the, the full scope of the legislation to see exactly how it will impact them if it's passed. But to that extent, businesses should collaborate on position letters so that you have several businesses at least co-signing each letter. So let me play devil's advocate here for, for a minute. 
what my complaint would be about something like this is that it actually makes it much more difficult for smaller players to compete. And I actually, you know, in my uh, non-Let's Talk Bitcoin life, with the work I, I do at Tokenly, we built an e-commerce product called Token Markets a couple of years ago. And after the bit license passed, we looked at what it meant for um, our company and our products. And we came to the conclusion that it was impossible for us to get a bit license, but we couldn't walk away from New York uh, because right. we were going after the fashion industry with one of our partners and they had an event that we were promoting in New York. And so we had to be able to accept e-commerce customers from New York. So we wound yes. up completely reworking uh, the way that we process transactions. And typically the way that you process transactions like a, a BitPay out there or something like that is you generate a unique Bitcoin address and then the customer pays the Bitcoin address and then you forward the payment to the merchant at the end of it. And that meant that uh, the payment processor is a custodied payment processor where even though they're only holding the funds for like 20 minutes, they still at some point in time hold the funds. And so what we figured out was that we had to go back and effectively make it so that we never touched the funds and the funds only ever went from the customer straight to the merchant. Part of its laws is the securities intermediary uh, implication. It suggests that one of the exemptions of securities intermediary as defined in the commercial code or commodity intermediary then it says that anybody that's getting a license is going to be treated as a securities intermediary. So it forces businesses into a model that they may not be interested in engaging in, puts them in a box, and it forces <laughs> any business that does not want to get a bit license, whether it's a very tiny kind of business that, might, that this might apply to or a very larger one that it absolutely will apply to. It forces them to assess what are our compliance costs and can we remain in this industry, which is why so many exchanges fled New York when New York's bit license was adopted. And so these, these exchanges then have to assess not only uh, how do we deal with compliance issues so as to avoid serving individuals in a state where there's bit license, but then on top of that, figure out, just like you did, how do we keep serving people in New York to the extent that we can, to the extent that it's possible, even if you don't get the bit license? Well, now you have exchanges saying, well, okay, you guys go uh, you know, incorporate, if you're a New York individual, go incorporate in a, in a non-bit licensed state, in some other state, you know, incorporate in California, for example. So you have, you know, example, New York people incorporating in California, then they get a corporate account on exchange, it doesn't have the bit license. And that in turn means that, that they have like a California type account that serves the corporation, but not the individual. But what if California then gets the bit license? Then they're screwed. Mm -hmm. you know, it's like, I find it really hard to advise anybody to incorporate now in California, Oklahoma, Nevada, or Hawaii, because those are the areas where bit license is proposed for 2019. Mm -hmm. And if it passes in any one of those states and you have a corporation in that state, you're not shielded from their bit license because, because your state of incorporation is the state where there would be a bit license, even if it wasn't before. So the people that thought they were operating within the scope and you know extent of where their business could afford to operate within that corporate framework now they find that they cannot, and they may have thousands of clients, and yet they have an account on an exchange because the exchange helps provide them with liquidity and helps provide their clients access to the markets and so on and so forth. So the exchanges are impacted, and the people who are clients of the exchanges, who are smaller businesses, are impacted even if they incorporate in a non-bit licensed state, if it becomes bit licensed. Uh, I hear all of that, and I don't disagree with any of it. My question is more specifically on the... What, what the bit license did in our case, I would not have, we would not have done that otherwise. We certainly would, have, would not have invested resources and certainly would have done lots of other things. But at the end of it, it wound up with a system where we actually were not custodying any 
part of the, you know, of the transaction. And it actually lowered the risk that we had too. And I think about that and I think about the reaction that I had to the bit license in terms of re-engineering our system to make it less vulnerable to that type of thing. And I think about um, things like uh, the, the Quadriga uh, exchange uh, you know, mm-hmm. issue that's been going Absolutely. on recently. Where yeah, real problem. Extreme lack of compliance and extreme lack of you know, forthrightness and it, and it appears that that money may have been gone a long time ago. Clearly, there are arguments in favor of having more regulated, especially as these entities get larger. So is, is the problem that you have with it that this is additional layers of regulation on top of regulation that's already there or that it's just yeah. unproductive? It's, it's, it's regulation for its own sake. It's totally unnecessary. I'm not saying I object to any concept of any sort of state bill, but, but let's be realistic. What would be the best sort of a state bill? Honestly, it would be if you had something that would require exchanges to meet some kind of a standard for security, not to, not to provide another permit to di- divulge all their client lists to the FBI, which is what New York requires, to have a per- quote-unquote periodic audits, to have permission layers of what's exempt or not exempt. How about simply a state bill that actually stipulates we're going to have a standard for security that you have to meet in order to comply with state law? Because that wouldn't be a horrible state law. People might still object to it, but you know, in all honesty, if you're a client of any exchange, your hope is that not only would the exchanges themselves be good enough to police themselves and create the best possible security, but if they can't, you would hope there would be a minimum security standard that might be required for them at some point. It doesn't require a whole another licensing regime, licensing on top of licensing, but what, it would, what, what I would advocate for, what I have advocated for in the past is some sort of system that creates a minimum security standard, especially for exchange for those exchanges that don't seem to care about security because there are some exchanges that care very deeply about security and there's others that literally don't. Apart from AB 1489, which we've discussed, uh, there's another bill called AB 953, which I think I'm complimenting the authors of this bill by saying basically this bill is a promotion for the stablecoin show. <laughs> and, and yet on top of that, that's not all it is. It's also a confounding the idea of stablecoin promotion or commingling with marijuana collectives. When I was looking at who are the people that are funding this garbage in the Reddit thread, I got into this a little bit, but didn't, didn't mention it too heavily. If you look for who's funding the legislators that are pushing these bills, including the stablecoin show bill, AB 953, you see that one of them is this group called Ghost Management, which is also funding legislators that are trying to push AB 1489, AB 147. And this ghost management, I was like, what is this group? Well, I looked it up and there's like a little Bloomberg profile on ghost management. And it basically is an organization that's been doing this whole marijuana collective um, thing, but they've been donating to these very legislators that are promoting AB 1489, the marijuana slash stablecoin shit show one and AB 147. So I'm like, oh, this is interesting, ghost management. And then they're a subsidiary of another company. Um, which which is also very interesting. So you have a few different companies that are promoting this bill and it's very ineffectively attempting to use their corporate names as a shield, ghost management. Well, we know exactly who they are because <laughs> you can look it up on Bloomberg just by typing in a couple words. They want there to be taxes paid on marijuana in stablecoins, which is sort of what the bill is basically promoting. And and so somebody from the stablecoin industry is is right now sort of sneaking around Sacramento, leaving a slime trail trying to promote AB 953. And that's really, I don't know what else to say about this. 
<laughs> how, you know, how does this stuff pass? How does anything pass? But there's over 2,000, how many, God, God awful bills are there in California right now. 2,000 something, I think it's 2,500. There's several hundred more bills that were introduced by the deadline this legislative session than there were last year. I think last year it was 2,170 something bills. This year it's 2,000, I think 500 and something. So, so you get the idea. It's very easy for, for this all to get sort of lost, like nobody sees what's going on because there's so many, it would be very easy to miss it. Who's asking for this? Like, well, uh, I don't know. I mean, I mean, apparently the ghost management group is definitely behind it. They, they feel that, that if they get this quote unquote city cannabis tax that's, that's indicated in the bill um, to be able to be paid by a stable coin, perhaps, um, you know, I, I, I don't want to say which stable coin, but anyone probably, although I, I'm guessing there's a few top stable coins in terms of, you know, the dominance that are most pushing for this thing. And then they want to do this to, to quote unquote, in the terms of the bill for cannabis licensees or people that are licensed in California, even if the federal government doesn't, you know, mm-hmm. doesn't permit that it's, it's still, you know, state is kind of looking the other way and saying, as long as we, as long as you pay us our, our piece, then we'll let you do whatever. So, so it's that, and then there's a, a another tax, county tax and a city tax, which they want to be able to have uh, favored for stablecoin payment via this bill. Kind of strange that somebody would actually advocate for taxes to be paid in a certain way. Why don't they just say, uh, we're not going to restrict how you pay. You can pay us however you want. No, no, instead they have to promote a stablecoin. Again, playing devil's advocate here for a second, one of the biggest problems that California has uh, in terms of the recreational marijuana industry is that dispensaries can't access the banking system in the same way that other businesses can. And so one could see how if you were resigned to, to, to not having the like normal way that everybody else does business work for this one particular sector of the economy, then you could make an argument for a stable coin because it allows you to do the remittances without using a bank as an intermediary effectively because you're using the network as an intermediary. I mean, it's, a, it's kind of a, it's a weird way to address the problem, but it's, it's a little bit novel in that way. Um, besides well, the I'm fact that... I'm not sure it's that novel at all because, no? because actually if they really wanted people to be able to pay, they would simply say, they would simply not pass any more new bills. They would say, gee, <laughs> back, back in 2000, I think it was 2014, I can't remember the year, but Brown signed into law something basically saying that, that virtual currencies can be you know, treated as money and isn't going to violate any law or whatever. So, so after that was passed, there were still legal issues that, you know, that people worked through in terms of saying, you know, we wish we would have even more permissions or that there'd be more regulatory clarity or whatever. But but once Brown signed that, that law, I forget what it was, some law in 2014 or 15 or whatever, then people were like, yeah, Bitcoin or any other virtual currency is treated basically as money if you want to, if you want to treat it that way for the purposes of some kind of payment. So why would you even need this bill? You don't. It's just promotion for the stablecoin industry. So whether you're in California or where it's also been introduced in Oklahoma, Hawaii, Nevada, and potentially other states as the year goes on, you should be opposing these bills. In California, AB 953 is the marijuana-related one. AB 1489 in California is the one that probably irks people the most, um, or would, whoever you are in the industry, especially if it directly applies to you. And then the similar bill to AB 1489 in California is also being promoted, as I mentioned, in, in Oklahoma, Nevada, Hawaii. In Oklahoma is HB 1954, 
in Nevada is SB195, in Hawaii is SB250 and HB70, Senate bill and House bill. So if you're in the industry, you should collaborate with other people in the industry and have a couple different businesses or three or four or five different businesses co-sign a, a letter of opposition to be sent into these various legislatures. Not just California, but Nevada, Oklahoma, Hawaii. Telling them how you feel, telling them whether or not you really want that to be the model for us in the future. And we're going to include um, all of the uh, names of the bills and links to the text within the show notes of this episode. So you can take a look at any of the ones, particularly yourselves. If you find yourselves in Oklahoma, Hawaii, or Nevada, uh, you'll want to check out the local state version of that bill. Colin, thank you very much for your time. On today's episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin, I'm here with returning guest Peter Van Valkenburg of CoinCenter.org. Peter, thank you very much for your time. Always happy to be here. So over the years, CoinCenter has played a front and center role in the push to gain legislative support and to make sure that if laws are being applied to Bitcoin, they're the best ones that we can get. Whether you agree with that assessment or not, can you correct me or expand a little bit on the motivating philosophy at CoinCenter? Yeah, I think that's, that's absolutely right. We're coin agnostic, so I'd extend that beyond Bitcoin to sure. any open blockchain network. So Ethereum, Litecoin, you know, whatever, as long as it's an open consensus mechanism. And then another just detail to add, our primary mission has always been to defend the core underlying technology. So we're not out to represent in Washington or at any government agency the interests of a company that's building on top of these networks. It's always the network itself. So we're, we're more like a digital civil rights organization than the industry lobby. Yeah. That does seem like it compares kind of directly against the other type of organization that's in the space, which are ones that are like working specifically with exchanges to lobby on their behalf. Really, what you guys are doing really is intended more to create a generic level playing field for the broad technology as a whole. We talk about things in terms of Bitcoin because it's Let's Talk Bitcoin, but cryptocurrency sure, sure. is broadly <laughs> that. Yeah. We actually work closely with, say, the Blockchain Association and with other industry associations because we normally have shared policy visions in mind. Like the interests of a lot of the businesses building on the underlying network are aligned pretty well with the interest of the network itself in most cases. Um, but we are different. Yeah. So today we're talking about the new proposed California bit license, as it's been described by community member Colin Gallagher, who's been sounding the alarm on California Assembly Bill 1489, if you want to look up the text. Before we talk about the actual bill itself, um, for this type of bill, if Coin Center could literally just pick what went into this type of bill, what would the purpose of that bill be? Uh, who does it protect? Who are we protecting from? So let me put it this way. 1489 is basically the Uniform Law Commission's alternative to the bit license. And we worked with the ULC two and a half years ago, starting two and a half years ago, and were involved in a lot of the drafting committee meetings for the original version of this, say, alternative bit license. And I'll tell you why. The bit license was terrible. Um, the bit license was drafted to be overly broad, you could read the language for virtual currency business activity, which is supposed to describe who needs a bit license and who doesn't, as covering all kinds of persons, including software nodes, miners, multi-sig providers who don't hold sufficient keys to transact. 
it's really not good to have that kind of ambiguity because the last thing we want is there to be a law in the books that could be used to force people who aren't custodial to get licensed because that's kind of game over for the network. I mean, I think the network would probably be fine, but it's game over for the legal use of the network. And so the bit license was this big problem for us. We wanted there to be an alternative out there for states that weren't willing to be hands-off. So there are some states that are willing to be hands-off, like Texas, Kansas, Illinois. Partially after we, we you know, helped the regulator in Illinois understand the alternatives, they said, yeah, actually, we, we don't want a licensing statute for this stuff at all yet. And Wyoming and New Hampshire, which passed laws saying, you know, Bitcoin businesses, if you're just doing crypto to crypto stuff, you don't need a license. So that's great. Coin Center completely supports those states that want to take that hands-off approach. But that said, it's politically unrealistic to imagine that all states are going to be willing to be that hands-off. Some states typically have Democrat majorities in their state legislatures, but I don't want to paint too broad of a brush, are just always going to be more concerned with consumer protection than they are with being really like uh, laissez-faire hands-off innovation. So in those states that are going to want to pass licensing laws or require licenses from Bitcoin exchanges, we wanted there to be a good law out there that wouldn't have the sort of alarming ambiguities that the bit license had, that would be extremely clear in the way it was written so that it would only cover people who hold other people's Bitcoins. In other words, only cover the Coinbases and, say, Zappos of the world and never cover the BitGo's when they offer their multi-sig solution or, for that matter, you know, Bitcoin Core or, say, a Lightning Network node, all these other non-custodial players who are hugely important. And so we worked with the Uniform Law Commission on drafting that law. They have a pretty open process, quite frankly. I was able to go to all the drafting committee meetings, and there were like seven of them. And we said... Here's the one definition Coin Center really cares about is this definition of control. Because this definition of control determines who is holding Bitcoins for other people and therefore needs a license. And the definition that we suggested and the ULC ultimately adopted in their model law was control is the ability to unilaterally execute or indefinitely prevent a Bitcoin transaction. I'm paraphrasing a little, but that's, that's, that's the essential logic of it. And it's important because that means that somebody who has one out of three keys in a multi-sig, one out of two because they're a lightning node and there's an N-lock, none of these players have the ability to indefinitely prevent or unilaterally transact. So they don't need a license under the ULC's law. And again, the ULC's law is the text of, of what's going on in California. So looking at the text of AB 149, section 3102, line three, (laughs) control means both of the following. When used in reference to a transaction or relationship involving virtual currency, power to execute unilaterally or prevent indefinitely a virtual currency transaction. And then uh, B is when used in reference to a person, the direct or indirect power to direct the management operations or policies of the person through legal or beneficial ownership of voting power in a person or under a contract arrangement or understanding. So basically what this says here is that in order for you to be considered someone who has control, you have to actually have control. <laughs> exactly. And, and so looking at the bill, that actually is in here. And so that, that's quite interesting. I have a couple of specific questions about this um, based off of what you've said so far. Um, so mm-hmm. one thing, uh, hearkening back to my conversation with Colin, <clears throat> we talked about the ULC 
Um, and he viewed it as, as kind of a negative thing, actually, as a way where these are bills that need to be fought. And so it's a way to, uh, to save on the creation, the cost of creating these bills individually in each legislature. And instead, you just craft one and then you push it through all of these different sort of industry channels and try to get it turned in, into state law. And he was viewing mm-hmm. that as a bad thing because he sees these laws generally as a bad thing. I mean, do we need these laws? Do we actually need regulations on the books, even in the case of states that want them? Because I mean, don't banking regulations, don't many of these regulations already apply? So banking regulations don't already apply unless you want to construe what a a Bitcoin exchange is doing as taking deposits. And and that's a a difficult thing to argue. And also it'd be rather bad because it would basically give exchanges free reign to to run essentially fractional reserve Bitcoin banks because that's that's what banks do. So banking laws are irrelevant to the conversation, really. Um, Money transmission laws are what are relevant. Money transmission licensing laws exist in every state except Montana. And money transmission licensing laws are already in place, and they basically say in, in different language in every state, because, again, all states have their own statutes usually. If you are accepting and transmitting money for other persons or facilitating the transmission of money or monetary value, you're a money transmitter and you need to get licensed. And that's a very broad definition. Like, if monetary value includes Bitcoin, and it almost certainly does, And if facilitating the transmission of monetary value could potentially include things like running software on an internet-connected computer that's relaying Bitcoin transactions, yeah, you're facilitating the transmission of monetary value. And in theory, by not having a license to run that node on your computer and you're living in, say, California, you technically might be violating California's existing money transmission law. And that's bad. And the regulators in California and in other states have not come after people doing this because that is a stretched interpretation of their laws. And I think there'd be good grounds to fight them if they did that. And I don't think they want that. I don't think they're interested in regulating software nodes. But nonetheless, those laws are on the books, which is like a sword hanging over your head if you're doing something that should never require a license in the first place. So given that that's the state of the world, that's where we are a law that you then pass that replaces that money transmission licensing law for the purposes of Bitcoin businesses and Bitcoin activities, if it says you don't ever need a license, if all you're doing is running software, if all you're doing is mining, then it's actually a deregulatory law. It says, look, the prior statute could have covered all these activities. The new one that replaces it only covers this one activity, and that's controlling Bitcoin on behalf of someone else. In your view, effectively, laws already apply to all of the behaviors we're talking about here. This is creating a more nuanced and specific version of those laws such that they actually make sense, but still regulate the players that the original laws intend to regulate. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense to me. So let's go through just real quickly um, uh, who this does not apply to, because I found that list to be kind of interesting. Um, I'm going to paraphrase the first several, and then I have two specific ones at the end that will lead into a question. So the people that this uh, law doesn't apply to who don't have to have this sort of thing, assuming that AB 1489 passes, uh, people who already have licenses that basically are equivalent to this at the federal or state level, uh, people who, as you said, are providing services or infrastructure but not actually touching any of the control elements. So this could be miners. Mm -hmm. It could also be other types of users too. Uh, People who are in exempted, already regulated industries. Uh, people who do business exclusively with people who aren't in the state of California, so there's nobody in California, therefore the law doesn't need to apply to you. Mm-hmm. Um, and then getting to the specific ones, 
a person using virtual currency, including creating, investing, buying, uh, selling, or obtaining virtual currency as payment for the purchase or sale of goods or services solely on the person's own behalf for personal, family, household purposes, or for academic purposes. So that's one of them. Mm -hmm. So that basically says that if you're doing it for yourself and it's not a business, then this doesn't apply to you. Mm And then the last one says, a person whose virtual currency business activity with or on behalf of residents is reasonably expected to be valued around $5,000 or less. Um, Right. uh, And so that means that you actually can have a virtual currency business that looks like a virtual currency business so long as it's so small that it doesn't cross this threshold. Right? Yep. Okay, great. So again, like that seems like it it encompasses most of the things we're talking about. But the question I have is, you mentioned exchanges a couple of times as the primary regulated entity. As a general rule, if you're a merchant, if you're selling something and you're accepting Bitcoin payments, then absolutely no, this law should not apply to you because you're a company acting on your own behalf, selling your goods or services, or maybe even reselling someone else's goods or services. Maybe that's where this gets complicated, but I don't think so. And so you're using Bitcoin on your own behalf. And, and that's fine. You're allowed to do that under that exemption, which was an exemption that we also fought for in the drafting committee meetings. That and the de minimis exemption, which said under $5,000, you're not regulated because we really only want this law to apply sensibly, I think, to big businesses that hold a lot of Bitcoin for other people, the Mt. Goxes of the world. So exchanges are platforms that connect someone who wants to buy and someone who wants to sell. Those are the customers. So those customers in doing this, so long as they're not doing it for business purposes, they don't fall under these laws, assuming that they come into force. Who should this apply to besides exchanges? Or is it literally just any business that holds money for any length of time? No, it should really only apply to exchanges. That's the purpose of that exemption that says that an individual or a business who is acting on their own behalf, buying, selling, holding anything, is, is not covered by this act. So if you're a business that's holding stuff on your own behalf because it's your business that's involved, rather than holding stuff for other people, in other words, being a, a wallet provider or a, a true exchange that's actually custodial and you know brokering deals between buyers and sellers and and assuming the counterparty risk or holding the money in between, then you're regulated. But the idea is if, if you've got an online shop and you've got you know customers, then you, you don't need a license. That's that's not this activity that's regulated, which is on behalf of others holding large amounts of cryptocurrency. Looking at some of the Reddit threads and the, the Twitter Please. conversation. The thing that's been most alarming to me is this mischaracterization of the law that says that somehow the law requires people to hold Bitcoin with intermediaries. I've seen that a lot, as if you're just not going to be allowed to hold your own Bitcoin anymore. You're going to have to hold it with the securities intermediary. There's nothing in the law that says that. The law doesn't regulate individuals and therefore could never even tell individuals what they are and are not allowed to do with their Bitcoin. And that exemption that we talked about, too, seemed pretty specific to the personal use. And it's pretty darn broad, you know, investing, creating, buying, selling, obtaining virtual currency as payment for purchase or sale of goods, services solely. I mean, again, and it covers basically everything except for business. And then you've got the $5,000 limit on the other side. It actually covers business. That language is person and person is defined as any legal entity, including Mm -hmm. business entities. 
what's next for Coin Center with regards to pushing forward in terms of legislation? Do you guys have more plans in mind in terms of ways to improve these bills further or kind of what's the goal here? So for the state law stuff, for the licensing issue, we're pretty much done. Our main objective with the Uniform Law Commission's Act was to get an alternative to the bit license that would definitely exclude sort of non-custodial infrastructure providers on, uh, on the networks. Because that's our main concern is that these networks need to run and they need to run without licensing. Now, things could still be a lot better at the states. We could have sort of more uniform laws for regulating custodians that could be calibrated to the amount of risk that the custodian provides. Like someone who's only having transient custody probably doesn't present the risk of somebody who's storing tons of Bitcoin for people. That'd be a better law. That said, it's really hard to get states to adopt, you know, a uniform standard. Mm. And so as long as we've got something better than the bit license out there for the states that are going to pass it, I think that's a win. And now Coin Center is more focused on federal law. And we might be able to fix this at the federal level rather than the state level by having some sort of preemption of state money transmission licensing. So there's just one federal authority that does the licensing and not 53 states and territories. Because that'd be pretty pro-innovation, actually. You don't have to have this awkward conversation with like 53 different regulators. And then there's other issues that we're focused on, too. Like we just released a paper on the constitutional law surrounding any attempt to license software developers. Because that, again, is a really dire threat on the horizon, potentially, especially with the emergence of electronic cash, as in like anonymous cryptocurrency and decentralized exchange, which are all software powered. So if there was ever an attempt in the future to try and license or permission those activities, just the development of the software, we'd need to fight it. And I think we could actually fight it on constitutional grounds. We've moved on to that. What's Coin Center's kind of stance on the current uh, guidance around taxes? Are you guys uh, trying to do any education or help with the IRS over there to maybe get some better standards or more nuanced rules out? So there's a couple of good bills in Congress. One by, that uh, was introduced last session, Polis and Schweikert, and one now that'll be coming up, Davidson. And both touch on this tax issue wherein you have to calculate capital gains even for for small dispensations of cryptocurrency. So if you buy something that's only like 100 bucks, you have to calculate capital gains. That's ridiculous. And that's a sort of a low-hanging fruit, something you could fix as far as tax policy by just saying, if any transaction's under $600, you don't have to calculate capital gains. You don't owe anything to the IRS. That'd be really good. So we're pushing for that. And we actually hired uh, our first um, new research fellow in a long time um, basically since we started. His name is James Faust. He used to be at the CFPB, so he's got regulatory experience, which is cool. And poor new guy, we we threw all of the tax work at him. So he's going to be coming out next month, I think, with a comprehensive paper on all the tax issues. Today on Let's Talk Bitcoin, I'm here with Ali Medina, the mayor of Emeryville, California, and the executive director at blockadvocacy.org. Ali, thanks for taking the time. Thanks for having me on. So before we get to the topic at hand, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, when and how you became interested in Bitcoin or cryptocurrency broadly? A little over a year ago, somebody that I used to work with at the San Francisco Democratic Party, Jason Wong, who's on our board, was like, you should start learning about blockchain. It's really important in the regulatory space, and we need more policymakers involved. And so um, he sent me some books to read. I got really interested in it. And I started looking up what the regulatory landscape was. It's a mess. It's a total and complete mess. They invited me to a dinner party with a bunch of crypto and lasagna in San Francisco. (laughs) 
as one does. As one does. Um, and, you know, they said that they had talked to several political consulting firms, but nobody there knew anything about blockchain and they didn't feel like they could really help bring to California what had happened in Wyoming. They were looking for sort of a plan forward. Um, and with my background in union organizing um, and my experience in both local and state politics, I thought I really could see a path here in California. And so I sort of laid out what a two-year plan would be. And we started year one last year and now we're in year two. Okay, so I want to dig into that a little bit more. Can you talk a little bit more about your background before you got into cryptocurrency? Because as I mentioned, you're the mayor of Emeryville and you know, you're younger than I am. And I usually feel like the youngest guy in the room when it comes to stuff like this. So kind of how, how did you find yourself in, a, in that situation where you were becoming the mayor of Emeryville at a young age before you were even interested in cryptocurrency? Okay, so I actually was not the mayor before I got into crypto. Um, small cities work on a rotating mayorship um, process. It's ah. a mayor system, which I feel like is a rude way of explaining it. Um, but basically, they elect five council members in Emeryville and we rotate year after year. So um, I was elected in 2016. That was a really rough election night for me personally. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was really excited and then also crying. So prior to that, I've been working in politics for my entire adult life, which you know is a, is a decade post high school, really. I worked on congressional campaigns during college. I worked for what I'll call a progressive puppy mill right after college, where I just churned out campaigns. Um, but I had like a staff of 22 people by the time I was 23 years old. I then applied for and got really lucky and got a job directing the San Francisco Democratic Party, which was just a really cool springboard for me to get more interested in statewide politics and understand party politics and the connections in between the two. I did some consulting for the California Bicycle Coalition and found out that I really care about transportation policy and I can really see how it affects our streets and how people live. It's a social justice issue. And so when three people decided to not run again for their seats on Emeryville City Council, the current mayor recruited me to run. She said, you know, we're a small city, you're young, super politically active, and you've got ideas around transportation, just go for it. So I did. I got elected at the age of 27. Today, I'd like to talk with you about what I'm uh, paraphrasing as the California Cannabis Stablecoin Taxation Act, which is formerly <laughs> known as the California Assembly Bill 953, and it has a basically unreadable real name because it's basically an amendment. Um, I I read the text of this bill and it is not much of a bill at all. It defines um, a couple of different terms. More importantly, it says that if this bill passes, then within about a year, year and a half, the relevant commissions have to come up with a rule and with a, a method by which cannabis producers, cannabis retailers, and other parties who are taxed in the medical or retail marijuana system in California may, but do not have to, remit payment in the form of a stable coin. Yeah. It's one of those things where like, I can see why, you, why this would happen in sort of a, a general sense. Like, I mean, I, I guess it's better to have more options and more competition, but I'm not seeing the acute need for this. Can you kind of explain the thought behind this bill or what it's trying to accomplish? There is actually a great need for this bill. Um, California legislator has been struggling for years to come up with a solution to the cannabis banking problem. Mm-hmm. Um, ever since even medicinal marijuana uh, became a thing that cities were doing, they realized you can't bank marijuana because banks need to be FDIC insured and because the federal government means most banks do not take marijuana clients. So it's a cash-based business, which is very retro and very dangerous for a lot of reasons. Um, as the mayor of Emeryville, I'm aware that when we permit marijuana businesses, one of the things we do is require them to show their security plans to our chief of police. 
the concept of security being such a big thing is a thing that a lot of small towns use to not allow marijuana businesses to operate in their jurisdiction, which is one of the parts of the statewide bill. So security has always been a big problem. Any jurisdiction that does allow marijuana businesses has to collect tax dollars from them, right? And that is done with armored vehicle most of the Mm. time. You have armored cars, which are expensive to hire, and people with bags of cash coming into City Hall. And then you have City Hall employees. This has been happening in Berkeley and Oakland for years, not in Emeryville yet, because we just got our first business. Going to City Hall, and they have to count out tens of thousands of dollars of cash at a time. And then the city has to pay for their armored truck to take it to their bank. And at the state tax level, we have reports that the CDTFA and the BOE smell like marijuana and fabric softener. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, you you have these boring agencies that are having like, you know, four cop cars and an armed vehicle out front and then people carrying in bags of cash and they have these safes that smell like marijuana. Now, (laughs) this is not a good or efficient system. It's expensive and not safe. Okay, so that makes sense. So this is something we've talked about a number of times. It affects marijuana as well. We've talked about it in the context of Operation Choke Point. I think that's what it was called, um, which was against um, adult service uh, providers and stuff like that, things that aren't actually illegal under most circumstances, but which are kind of beyond the pale under certain situations or to certain groups of people, and therefore they wind up getting excluded either at the federal level or even at just kind of the state policy level. Um, from the ability to use the banking system. And that banking system is very important, not just for people actually being able to, you know, walk into a store and use a credit card like they do everywhere else. But as you said, because it means that otherwise you have to deal with these gigantic stacks of cash, which has this huge infrastructure, which actually creates most of the danger around the legal space. So the idea here is that by making it so that California has to, the regulatory bodies have to put a system in place that allows someone to choose to use this. It means that people who still want to use the terrible cash-only system, of course, can continue to use that, but this would allow for that to happen differently. So, but how do you, how do you get from here to there, though, right? So someone gives cash to a marijuana retailer, and then the marijuana retailer has cash. How do they convert that into a stable coin? I mean, like, are they taking those sacks of cash and instead of bringing it to, you know, City Hall... They bring it to, you know, the stablecoin conversion facility you envision, you know, setting up or how does, how do we get from A to B? Um, I think there's a few ways this can happen. And before, you know, we went ahead and shopped this bill, I spoke to a lot of my local cannabis companies. Unfortunately, um, one of my local ones, East Bay Therapeutics, has like 25 years of tech background. So mm-hmm. they were really able to understand this and help walk through how they thought this would work for businesses. So what we envision happening is one of two things. I think there will probably be, once this passes, a cottage industry that pops up to service, maybe, yeah, a stablecoin facility where you can bring in your bags of cash. I mean, maybe there will even be a marijuana cash-backed stablecoin because there's so, in fact, much marijuana cash. But that's not what we're prescribing. The businesses, especially the ones with more tech-savvy consumers in the Bay Area, Mm -hmm. would probably start accepting virtual currency initially and offer consumers a discount to pay them in virtual currency because it's much cheaper for them to accept it and to hold it than for them to deal with the cash. And there's a new bill up to also lower the excise tax. So all they really need to do is get up to a quarter of what they have into virtual currency. They could have one of those Bitcoin ATMs up front for some consumers. I'm sure a bunch of people have Coinbase wallets and they could just pay up front like you would with Google Pay. And so there's a couple of ways of getting the virtual currency into the system. But what most of the businesses I've talked to have said is they think this will be a ripple effect. They think the entire industry will start moving towards virtual currency. It's interesting that this is being phrased effectively as a bill because this is something we've actually seen pop up from the broader cryptocurrency community a couple of times 
with different types of tokens that really targeted this problem and said, if we can get a specific marijuana coin or something like that into these spaces, then we can solve this problem. And it really hasn't happened I can speak to a bit of why. When I started speaking to um, cannabis businesses, they said they'd actually been reached out to many crypto companies and didn't want to have anything to do with them because they didn't understand the industry. They were scared of getting involved in anything that had questionable regulations because they were already in a precarious legal position. And so when I started talking to them and said, you're the mayor, we'll listen to you. And if there is a legal framework to do so, that's something we really want to get behind. So this is supported by the cannabis industry because they want to have like a framework that explains exactly what's required and has some consumer and business protections for them so that they're not getting ripped off. Because right now, banks are charging them ridiculous fees to even bank in cash. They're just really going after them. They're getting gouged by everyone. So they don't want to, you know, go with this new industry without having any sort of consumer protections in place. I don't know how much you looked at California's other bills. But for the past couple of years, there have been multiple working groups to try to address the cannabis banking problem. Um, 2017, the state treasurer's report says, we got nothing for you, use our cars. They spent a lot of money and another year convening a cannabis banking working group. And they released the report December 27th of 2018. My, my holidays were fun. Um, so I got to read 127 pages of state treasurer's report that said cryptocurrency is not a good solution and no explanation of why. And then another like 200 like paragraphs about why a public bank is financially infeasible, which I agree with. There was a bill last year that failed, SB 930, that would have created a cannabis depository institution, mm. aka the Dank Bank Bill by <laughs> Senator Hertzberg. Um, he's reintroduced that this year, but it will have a minimum capital cost of like $20 million to set up an individual charter, so just one, mm-hmm. and an ongoing cost of $2 million a year. And I don't think that's necessarily a bad idea, and I, we've worked with Senator Hertzberg's office. Um, he's got a lot of knowledge around financial institutions, but we think this is a much cheaper, more straightforward alternative that solves the federal problem, because at no point do you have to worry about the federal government in this. Right, because the federal government gets involved with this through the banking system, and so by avoiding the banking system, you avoid the feds. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So given that there have been attempts to solve this problem before, and given that while this is a, a a fairly light bill, again, in terms of it doesn't really prescribe how it has to be done. It just prescribes that there needs to be an option by a certain kind of time set. Uh, how do you feel about the chances of this actually making it through the legislature? I feel really, really good about it. Um, we we're fortunate to find a strong author in Assemblymember Filting of San Francisco. And, you know, he not only, he was the assessor recorder of San Francisco, so he was a tax collector. He really understands the need for this and how this works. He also is the chair of the state's budget committee and sits on the revenue and taxation committee. He is the right guy to be carrying this bill through. He he can explain all of the problems with our current system and how this is an effective alternative. And we've been engaging the state treasurer's office and board of equalization early on. Um, I did a roundtable with our treasurer now, Fiona Ma, um, last year, and this partially came out because she asked me, can we do this for cannabis? This is a problem. When I get sworn in, I'm going to have to solve. And so by working with the treasurer's office in the bill, you're going to notice that it says with direction from the treasurer's office, what this will do is give them until Jan- June, 2020. So we could have done a January deadline, but that seemed a little mean to make the state agencies learn about crypto this fast. So give them until June, 2020 um, to kind of promulgate regulations. And so if this passes, my work doesn't stop in October 13th when it's signed into law, then we will work with the agencies to create through rulemaking, like a set of good standards for how this should work. And then cities can adopt those and counties can adopt those. And I think there's like two ways this can go forth. Either individual cities like my own will probably will set up our own wallet to accept taxes 
Or cities who don't want to do that can have the state accept taxes on their behalf and remit it because of the low cost of uh, moving money around via virtual currency. So, Ali, I really appreciate your perspective on this. I think it has shed a decent amount of light here. Um, one other question I have, and this is really just minutia, um, you know, when we talk about stable coins, it's kind of like a class of things. Um, yeah. do, you, do you envision this bill moving forward, retaining that language and just applying to sort of any stable coin? Or is this going to be like California issues a stable coin or, or something like that? I think fiat collateralization is kind of important. I know there's other types of stable coins, um, you know, MakerDAO, for example, but that's going to be really complicated for me to explain to legislators, to be honest. <laughs> um, it works for the state to say our stable coins that we accept should be tied one-to-one for the U.S. dollar. It makes a lot of sense for the state government to say that, even though we know there are other types of stable coins. We might change the definition. I'm open to that. I'm creating a working group around it to expand the definition of stable coins, but I believe the state will still require one-to-one peg with U.S. dollar. Mm. Fiona Ma, our treasurer, who actually knows more about crypto than you might expect, um, made her own coin. Mm. It's called CalCoin. Mm. She just she had um, her staff make her a token while she was on the campaign trail. So like, <laughs> I'm looking for a use for this. Nice. It's good. It's fun. You know, again, it's, it's always, it's been very interesting watching the progression of this thing because like the first year we kind of all go through the same type of uh, type of ramp up, right? Where you learn about more things and you try out new things and you kind of dig into it and stuff like that. So it's exciting to hear that that's happening at, frankly, the state legislator level or the treasury level. That's great, especially because the FPPC ruled last year that in California elections, you cannot accept virtual currency anymore mid-election cycle. So Newsom's team had to pull his campaign page that was accepting virtual currency. I know that you're involved with other kind of initiatives, and we just talked with Peter Van Valkenburg and Colin Gallagher about AB1498, which is the sort of California bit license, as we've been calling it. Do you have any things that you want to share with us about that? Um, you know, the author is Assembly Member Calderon, and he's the one who carried AB2658, which created California's blockchain working group last year. My understanding from his office is they're not trying to create like a framework that's going to quash the industry. They got this language and a uniform law commission is well respected in the legislature, And they saw this as, Hey, we can work on this. Um, they introduced it as a two year bill. And that's really important to note. They're not trying to rush this through with no input from the industry. And they've already been engaging with us and they know we're very concerned about a lot of parts of it. So I would say if you are concerned about the bill um, to get in touch with the author's office or with me. And so we can kind of capture those comments because we have two years to work on this. This isn't something that's going to be imposed upon the industry by October at all. That's not their intention. They want to work with us to make it better. Great. And we'll have the uh, contact information there in the show notes for the episode. Um, You know, with the show, we never talk about politics and we're nonpartisan and it's really just kind of about technology, but I can tell you, and I feel like I should represent that position here at least, you know, a lot of the concern about California is that because it's so dominated by one party, they do a lot of things that a lot of people on the outside think are pretty dumb. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think that's a lot of the concern here is that like, for example, um, I went to buy a couch somewhat recently (laughs) and it was very hard to find a couch that my wife was going to be okay with because California passed a rule in 1974 that made it so you had to have fire retardant. And California is such a large market that even though it was only a rule in California, every manufacturer that serviced the United States made that change proactively. And it turns out that in 2015, they wound up taking out that requirement because it was poisoning people for 30 years. And also it didn't actually change anything about fires because that the thing that they changed wasn't actually what was causing the fires in the first place. 
that I think, <laughs> in a nutshell, sort of describes the big concern that people have about things like this happening in California through the California legislature. And it's not that people are bad, it's that one party is in control. And when one party is in control, sometimes things happen with less scrutiny because everybody wants to be on the same team because we're all kind of on the same team. There's not really too much of a question here. I just wanted to know kind of what do you think about the current political state of, of California, both as someone who's, um, you know, actually in power a little bit here um, and just as someone who lives there and, and, you know, tries to make things happen within the space to improve things? I think you'd be amazed at how much of a split there is within the Democratic Party in California. Mm. Um, in San Francisco, there's full on two parties of Democrats. You've got moderates and progressives. And that's you're starting to see that triple up into um, the state legislator in California. Uh, there, there is, you know, definitely separate encampments. Um, but I understand the concern. And I think that's sort of what my job is, right? I, I have to really keep the pressure on um, mostly my fellow Democrats and explain that to them the impacts of what they'll be doing and bring the industry in really early on in this bill cycle so that we can have an impact on it. Because yeah, you're right. This thing could pass. If no one was paying any attention, it could go forward as it currently is. But it's there's no malintent, as you noticed. So we can work with a very reasonable group of people who do want to help, you know, the tech industry grow and stay in California. There's a lot of opportunity to, you know, work together here, but you just have to pay a lot of attention early on. Today's episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin was brought to you by fellow early adopters and longtime friends of the show at EasyDNS.com. When you need website hosting, domain management, email provisioning, or more, think EasyDNS.com. Oh, and use coupon code LTB half off if it's your first time. Thanks for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Content for today's show was wrote by Colin Gallagher, Peter Van Valkenburg, Ali Medina, and Adam B. Levine. Music for today's show was provided by Jared Rubens and Gertie Beats. Questions or comments? Email Adam at letstalkbitcoin.com. We'll see you next time.